Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. Beloved, this evening we'll be looking at Psalm 62, Psalm of David. Please follow along as I read. Let's hear God's word. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are altogether lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. Let's pray together. O gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank you and we praise you for your mighty word. For we know that your word is powerful and alive and active and does not return void, but that your word penetrates our hearts. So, Father, as we hear from your word today, we pray, Lord, that you would bless us and that your Holy Spirit would teach us and renew our minds, and that we would see afresh the wonder that Jesus Christ is indeed our rock and our refuge in times of trouble. We give you all praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beloved, have you ever had one of those days or seasons in your life where you ask, what's next? where you're waiting for the other shoe to drop, anxiously awaiting or anticipating the worst. It may be relational conflict in your family, or you're struggling to make ends meet, and then what happens? Your car breaks down, and you wonder, what are we going to do? Or you get the doctor's report, and the prognosis is not good. And then you have those dark nights of the soul, of 
tossing and turning and questioning and worrying, and you feel like a tube of toothpaste that's been squeezed dry and rolled up completely empty with nothing much left? Well, what do you do? How do you respond in those circumstances in light of who you know God is? Well, we find that Psalm 62, this this Psalm of David, to be very instructive because he knew what it was like to be in dire circumstances, to be in dire straits. When we consider David's life and all the tribulations and travails that he went through, we can imagine that he must have asked himself over again the same question, what next? What next, Lord? His life was a series of struggles and stress. Most of his life he was a warrior battling beasts or giant men or warring tribes. And for years he was on the run from a crazed king. And then in his final years, his own son, his own son conspired against him in an effort to overthrow him from the throne. So he very well could have asked himself, what next? What next? And Psalm 62, this Psalm of David is one of those next, what next moments in David's life. And this Psalm is so interesting because it seems to have been written in real time as the actual events were taking place unfolding right before David's eyes. And we notice that as David sings about them, his focus changes as the song progresses. At first, in the first several verses, he looks up. And then he looks down and looks around. And then in the other next verses, he looks within. And then in the final verses, he looks a long way off. And what we see here is as his vision changes, so does his strength and of his faith in God. As his focus moves, his faith ebbs and flows depending on what he's looking at. Now, in the first two verses, his vision is drawn upward, upward to God. And as he does, he sings in verse 1, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. Now, what does he mean that his soul waits in silence? The NIV translates verse 1, that my soul rests in God alone. So to paraphrase David here, he is saying that even though life is crashing down around me like turbulent waves, I am serene and still as still waters. Or to paraphrase Simon and Garfunkel, he is a bridge over troubled water. Now, how is that possible? Well, what is he not saying? He's not describing some sort of passive existential resignation like a man being carried away by the riptide of faith going wherever the current takes him. No, he is not passive at all. Rather, he is actively trusting in God alone. 
and he is not trusting in his own cunning, his own wits or resources to deliver him from calamity that he is facing, for he knows that only God, only God can save him from this adversity. So David here has a quiet confidence in God. And because of that confidence in God, he can be at peace. He can be still without any fear, without any anxiety, knowing that the Lord has everything under his control and that the Lord will save him. So his soul is still but expectant, waiting for God to act. David could very well sing the hymn, When peace like a river attends my way, When sorrows and sea billows roll, Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. Now how does he know that God can save him? Is David just being presumptuous here? No, he bases his trust in God's salvation on the character of God, on the character of God. We see this in verse 2. He describes God as his rock, his defense, our fortress, and therefore David will not be greatly moved. Now, God is described as a rock about 20 times in the Psalms, and it was a favorite expression of David's. But it seems a bit strange to compare the all-powerful, glorious king of the universe to something so common and low as a rock. Most of the time, I'm trying to get rid of my rocks in my backyard, not honor them. So why describe God as a rock? Well, what is a huge rock? It is solid. It is immovable. When you stand on it, you have a firm foundation. You will not sink into the abyss if you stand upon a solid rock. You can lean on it, and it will uphold you. But also for David, for David, rocks and caves were his shelter when he was fleeing from Saul. We see this in 1 Samuel 22 and 23, where the hills and the crags were David's hiding places and strongholds when, when he was hounded by Saul. So David is saying here, God, you are like those rocks that protected me from my enemies. You are my hiding place. You are my shelter in the storm. And yet we can also see another connection that goes back even further than David. In Deuteronomy 31, Moses is giving his final instructions before the Israelites enter the promised land. And Lord said to Moses, Moses, before you pass the baton to Joshua and pass away, I want to teach the Israelites a song which is about their character and my character. And in Deuteronomy 32, Moses sings this song that the Lord gave them. And in the song, how does the Lord describe himself? He describes himself as a rock, a rock who is just, a rock who is powerful, a rock who is secure, a refuge for his people. So David's people had a long tradition 
of viewing the Lord as a rock who saves. Because the character of God is like a rock, solid and secure. David could say with complete full confidence in verse 2 that he will not be greatly shaken. And yet in his situation, he should be shaken. He should be shaking in his boots. In verse 3 and 4, notice that his focus changes. In 1 and 2, he is looking up to the character of God. And when he looks to the character of God, he is calm, cool, and collected, and confident. But in verses 3 and 4, he begins to look down. And he begins to look around him. And what does he see? Not calm, but he sees conflict and collusion. In verse 3 and 4, he looks at his enemies and his, and his tune suddenly changes. He says in verse 3 and 4, How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence, they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Now, many see in these verses a connection to Second Samuel 15 through 17, where David's son, Absalom, tried to usurp David's throne from his, from his father. And in that horrible conflict, some of David's most trusted friends and allies turned against him. Those closest to him who had served him faithfully for years, they conspired with his rebellious son Absalom and in his attempt to overthrow his father. According to verse 3, the attack had been prolonged. How long will you continue to attack me, to batter me? And David describes himself in a weakened state as a leaning wall without, about to crumble, as a fence about to fall over. So it may be that he was perceived by these traitors as old and vulnerable. They may have been thinking, David is on his way out. He has had his day. David's almost done. Now he's old, he's a pushover, he's easy to knock down. And how do they attack him? Not with fists or swords, but with words, cunning words, and slanderous speech. They, have, they may have said, you know, if we sped, spread enough bad PR about David, if we destroy his brand, if we repeat lies often enough, people will begin to believe them. So we can poison the water against David, and then people will turn against him and turn towards Absalom. And this is exactly what happens in 2 Samuel 15 as Absalom slyly maligns his father's reputation and he elevates himself in the eyes of the people, insinuating that he would be more just, that he would be more compassionate, that he would be a more effective ruler than his father, that he feels your pain. What duplicity! His conspirators were two-faced. 
They were double-tongued, seemingly loyal on the outside, but plotting against the king on the inside. Now, even though David was king, his experience was not that unusual. I ask you, have you ever encountered people like David's enemies People who smile at your face, but all the time they want to take your place, the backstabbers. Maybe it's a coworker who with one hand pats you on the back, but with the other sticks a knife in it and twists it. Who acts all sincere and concerned to your face. Oh, how are you doing? How's the family? But to the boss, he degrades you and casts aspersions about you. You know, I don't think... This guy really knows what he's talking about. I don't really think that he's committed to the company's culture or vision. Do you know people like that? People who are envious and jealous, and so they want to take you down so they can build themselves up. People like that in your life can really give you an ulcer and make all sorts of trouble for you. And we see in the following verses that how these characters affected David adversely. They disturbed his soul. Because in verse 1 and 2, David's soul is still. He is serene in strife. He is just waiting on the Lord to send in the Calvary and to save him. But then in verses 5 and 6, his soul is no longer at peace. And when does that happen? after he focuses on his enemies. In fact, what does he say? In verse 5, soul, be silent. Soul, hush up. Soul, get a grip. His former tranquility has been replaced by anxiety. So what does he do? What does David do? Well, he changes his focus once again, and he begins to look inward. And he talks to himself. But he doesn't talk to himself about himself. He doesn't say, soul, be still, because I am a mighty king. Soul, now hush, because you know that I'm a great warrior. I've got some tough armor and a big sword, and I know how to use it. I'm so bad, I'm good. No, he doesn't bolster himself by talk, talking about his own power and authority. No, he talks to himself about God. And he reminds himself not of who he is, but who the Lord is. And he repeats again some of the same phrases in ver from verses 1 and 2 about God's character, that God is a rock, his defense, his strength, and his salvation. And as he talks to himself about God, not only he focuses on God's character, but he also focuses on God's commitment to him. Take a look at verse 7, where, where we see this. He says in verse 7, Oh, on God rests my salvation and my glory or my honor. And what David is saying here in verse 7 is that his honor as king has been established by God and will be sustained by God because David knows that the Lord has made 
an everlasting commitment to him. This verse harkens back to 2 Samuel 7, when the Lord had made a covenant with David in which he promised David that his kingdom would be an eternal kingdom and his offspring would rule forever. So David knew not only the character of God, but he knew that the Lord had committed himself to David for all eternity, that through David, God would establish an everlasting kingdom. Though fiery trials may come, though others oppose him and try to defeat him, he will stand and he will stand strong because of the Lord's commitment to him. His kingdom will never end. Now, as David focuses inward and he talks to himself of the character and commitment of God in verses 6 and 7, we see the effect it has on him, that it bolsters his faith. Notice the difference between verse 2 and verse 6. In verse 2, David says, I will not be greatly moved, but in verse 6, he says, I shall not be moved, period, nada, not one inch will I be moved. He will not tremble or totter in the face of his enemies because of God's salvation, not one bit. And notice what he says in verse 7. He says that God is not just a rock, but a mighty rock, the rock of his strength. So we see in the progression of this psalm, his confidence in the Lord has only grown. The adversity that David goes through doesn't kill his faith, but the adversity only strengthens his faith. One of the things that is so interesting about this psalm is we see how real and organic David's faith is. We see in the psalm how his faith swells and then shrinks and then grows even greater. We see in this psalm an important truth, that faith in the Lord is not static. There doesn't come a time in our earthly existence when we have arrived and we have an unflinching faith. 100% of the time. There is an ebb and flow to our faith in the Lord. After all, here is David. He's approaching old age, and he had seen God deliver him time and time and time again in the past. And yet, despite all of those deliverances, he still needs to remind himself when facing a new trial or a different adversary, that the Lord is his rock and his refuge. He still has to say, soul, hush up and be still and wait on the Lord. He still needs to reflect on God's character and on his commitment to him in order to be at peace. And when he reflects on God's past deliverance, it brings him present confidence in the present trial. And so his faith also grows. Brothers and sisters, 
Are we not like David? Our faith is not static, but there's an ebb and flow to it, is there not? And it increases and decreases in strength depending on our focus as we see in the Psalm of David. When David is looking up in verses 1 and 2 and reflecting on the character of God as his rock and his fortress, his soul is still and his faith in the Lord is strong. But when we take our focus off the Lord and we look at ground zero and focus only on the conflict or the adversary or the adversity like David did in verses 3 and 4, then our faith can shrink as our problems appear larger than our Lord. So when that happens, what do we do? Well, what did David do? We remind ourselves of the character of God and of his commitment to us, that he is our rock and that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, that the Lord is our refuge who has promised us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Well, David talked to himself about God, and it bolstered his faith. He once again is still before the Lord, waiting for him to save him. Now notice what David does next. Having talked to himself about God, he then goes and talks to others and tells them to pour out their hearts to God in prayer. And there's a certain irony here in this psalm. How do you wait silently on the Lord? Well, the way to wait silently in your soul is by not being silent but by pouring out your cares before the Lord in prayer. And when we unburden our our burdens through prayer and we place them before the Lord in his hands, then we find rest for our souls. Now, where else do we see this truth in Scripture? We see it in Philippians 4, 5 through 7, which is like a commentary On these verses from Psalm 62, for Paul writes in Philippians 4, The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And what? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Well, having told the people to pour out their hearts to God, who is their refuge, he then changes his focus to a long-distance view in these final verses. And this final vision only reinforces his faith. For when he looks into the vast reaches of time, he sees the immense difference between the Lord and mankind. He sees humanity and our end. Notice how he describes most of us in verse 9. That the average person, what are they like? They're like a vapor, that they're here today, and they're gone tomorrow. That poof, like a puff of smoke, they're no more. Now think about it. Think about how many billions of people have lived and died, and no one knows who they were. 
And most of us will probably be forgotten within 30 or 40 years after our passing. As Psalm 103 paints this so graphically, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. And what else does David say in verse 9? That even the wealthy, the 1%, the movers and the shakers and the shapers of history, what are they? Well, they're a vapor too. Poof, they're going to be gone. And look how he describes the highborn. He says that they are a lie. They are a delusion. For a time, they might seem powerful, They might look like they have it all and have made it. They oppress others and take advantage of the disadvantage. They never seem to be held accountable for their actions. They rig the system in their favor and seem always to come out winning. And the tyrants and the dictators of this world can have their jackboots on the throats of the downtrodden to crush them. And they never ever seem to get their just reward in this earth. But David says, what is their end? They are but a vapor. They are nothing. So the psalmist warns us, warns us in verse 10 not to put our trust in ill-gotten gain because it will be gone in a flash, just like we will be. He warns against putting our security in what can be seen, what is tangible, that our wealth and possessions, whether rightfully or immorally achieved, offer no real security for us. The dictator, the tyrant, trusts in his power. His armies are his weapons, are his ability to subjugate people through intimidation and fear. But beloved, who has the real power? Not the rulers of this world who can be seen but the one who cannot be seen. He's the real powerful one. For what can be seen is all transitory, whether people or possessions. So why put your security in them? What David is saying here in these final verses is, you evildoers who are corrupt and crooked, whatever you gain in this life is of no value in the final analysis because you cannot take it with you. You can't take your gold or your offshore accounts or your mansions or your silk suits or your Italian leather shoes. You cannot take any of it with you. All that you leave this earth with, all that you hold in your hands in the next life is a rap sheet of crimes against humanity. Now, who should be shaking in their boots And you who think you're so powerful, you will stand before one who holds the universe in his hands. And what will happen to them? Well, David says in verse 12 that they will give an account before a just and holy God who will render to each one according to his work. Those who cheat and lie and oppress others will stand naked and ashamed before a just judge who will sentence them for all eternity for their crimes against humanity. So David is taking the long view of his situation, and he must be thinking, why 
should I fear these evildoers who seek to harm me, who lie and slander me? For the Lord will indeed save me. And what will become of those who attack God's anointed? God will repay them in kind with his just judgment. As the Lord himself said, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And we might be saying, yes, yes, there is justice after all. The bad guys will get it in the end. And beloved, they will. But not so fast with our cheers and all of our hoopla. Because these verses were not just meant for tyrants and oppressors of this world. They apply to all of us. We will all stand before a just, holy, and powerful God. And he will render to us what is due for us for all that we have done on this earth. The bad news is that we all have a rap sheet of our own of crimes against humanity and against God. As we have broken all of his commandments in thought, word, and deed, so we would all be sentenced to eternal life in a hellhole. And justly so, paying for our crimes against an infinite God for the rest of eternity. For God is just And he is powerful to execute his justice. And beloved, we would all, all be doomed. The 99% along with the 1%, we would all be doomed except for this. For these two wonderful words in verse 12, which offers us hope for forgiveness. And these words are the Lord's steadfast love. Verse 12 says, to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. So we find out that the Lord is not only just, not only powerful, but that he's merciful, showing steadfast love and kindness. For God showed his great mercy through his only begotten son, who was born to David's lineage as a king. And like his forefather, King David, this king knew what it was to be maligned and slandered and persecuted and afflicted. This king also knew what it was to have false friends betray him with a kiss of kindness. This king also knew powerful people who were jealous and who wanted him to topple over. But unlike King David... This king was not rescued from his adversaries. No, in fact, this king willingly allowed them to take his life. And in dying, when Jesus seemed most weak and beyond hope, he was really the most strong. For he was doing battle, and he was doing battle for us. For on the cross, he was strong for us. On the cross, he took upon himself the just judgment that was ours for our crimes against humanity and crimes against divinity. God's sinless 
perfect son substituted his life for us, willingly taking upon himself the full wrath of God's justice, his father's justice that should have been ours, so that our rap sheet could be torn in two with those words, it is finished, it is done, the debt has been paid. You are free from all judgment and penalty so that your life might be reckoned as his son, sinless, spotless, free from all condemnation as we receive Christ's righteousness. And the Lord proved that he was true and the true Messiah through his resurrection. So, beloved, that we can be so thankful for that word in verse 12, to know that God is merciful and that his mercy is available to all today. And all you need to do to receive it is to receive it by faith, to do what David did, to look up and to say, O Lord Jesus, you alone are my rock and my salvation. You alone are my refuge from my worst enemy, my sin and death itself. Only in you and you alone is there salvation from the just judgment that I deserved. For you are the only way. You are the truth, the life. There is no other name under heaven or earth by which we can be saved. And just as King David put his trust in you to save him, so you can put your trust in the Lord Jesus to save you for all eternity. And then we can sing, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. And when we do, we cannot be shaken by this fleeting world, for the Lord will uphold us as our rock and our refuge. We have seen this evening that when we have those dark nights of the soul, what helps us? Well, it's all about our vision. It's all about our focus. That when we keep our focus looking up and keeping our eyes fixed on what is true and what is real, on the character of the Lord, that he is merciful and he is consistent in his steadfast love. And we reflect not only on his character, but we focus on his commitment to us. And we see the depth of his commitment to us in the cross, in saving us for all of eternity. How can we doubt his love and grace for us and care for us when he is so faithful and has faithfully pledged himself to us promising that he will never leave us nor forsake us and that he will be indeed our rock and our refuge in the storm. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you did not leave us with a rap sheet of our sin, but that you sought to save us solely out of, our, out of your grace and mercy, out of your steadfast love in sending to this earth your sinless Son who took on our humanity who suffered on the cross for our sins, the just judgment that we deserved, so that we can be free from it. We thank you that you are our Savior, our Lord, our Creator, our King, and our friend. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless us now. In Jesus' name, amen.